0: Every year, artists from all fields of the arts and from all parts of the world travel to Sari Residence in southwest Finland to focus on their artistic work and exchange ideas and experiences. The Sari Residence aims to be a test platform for the future that is sustainable ecologically, socially and mentally. This podcast stems from themes that are essential in the Residence's daily ecological activities. Together with Invited Experts, we talk about returning to our roots to restore nature and ourselves. My name is Mia Leine, and this is Reviving the Wild. What do you think when you hear the term luxury gastronomy? I would name items like truffle, lobster or caviar. You know, the really fancy, tiny portions you eat in a high-end restaurant of a pristine white plate. But what defines luxury? Is it the ingredients themselves or the passion and integrity we have towards them? Sami Talberi is an award-winning chef and food writer who is known especially for his wild food and mushroom-focused books. And he cooks weekly in the Sari residence. For Sami, eating is one way to interact with our surroundings. He is an advocate and a long-time lover of foraging. A forager is a person who collects edible plants or fungi from the wild for consumption. And for Sami, the real luxury of gastronomy are local, seasonal ingredients.
1: I've been doing this now with attention, with love and passion and with guidance <laughs> for almost 20 years. Uh, my very first connection with foraging was in the UK. I was running a restaurant in Shoreditch and this hippie looking guy just came out of nowhere and asked me if I want to buy some sea kale. And I said I would love to buy it. What is it? <laughs> you know, it looks great. And long story in short, it's basically that plant blew my mind. And uh, I went to do foraging in Kent with this guy called Miles Irving, that happened to become my kind of a mentor in foraging. And we were foraging some sea kale and wild fennel and wild watercress in the UK. And then I still stayed there many many years. And this like using foraged ingredients became staples in my cooking in my philosophy of cooking then when I returned to Finland I was a little bit disappointed because I had no forager there. I didn't have my private forager here like I used to have in UK (laughs) Miles Irving one of the top foragers in the world actually happened to be my private forager and then after that disappointment I quickly realized that actually the whole Finland's uh, food culture is based on wild ingredients so I had to do my work and dive into the wild and a plant by plant I've now discovered and engaged and created a relationship between hundred and twenty-three plants. <laughs> yeah. That's another And this plant. seems to be this seems to be the the job for the rest of my life in this incarnation yes
0: that's very beautiful um how has that affected you as a chef as well you you talked about you've been in like these luxury kind of Mm. uh more traditional kitchens Mm. and and then done a lot of uh engaging with nature how has your outlook on kind of food changed as Uh, well uh,
1: dramatically basically i used it back in the day like a long time ago to idolize, you know, five-star hotels, three-star Michelin places. But now, since I've been discovering this nature and being part of nature, never above it, you know, but being one with nature, I realized that instead of five stars or three stars, you know, I can do this foraging and gathering the ingredients for cooking under, you know, five billion stars. So, (laughs) you know, I'm happy as Larry to do this. And I've been also writing about, this ethos and my philosophy about well-being by foraging and being one with nature, you know, including this uh, springy uh, wild herb season. And then later on the summer, the berries come out and in autumn, the mushrooms come out. And this whole foraging season in Finland is basically, it's it's not just like a little thing to do in short period of time, but it's actually a way of living because we can start foraging often during the last week of March, uh, you know, the bird sap usually starts flowing that early. And uh, you can still forage some of the wild mushrooms, you know, and Christmas Eve, because some of the varieties, they can handle a little frost. So it's basically like nine months out of every year you can do foraging. So it's not just something that you can do in the springtime and pick a few herbs and sprinkle on top of your cake, but it's more more of a way of living and really a living the Finnish life. Hmm.
0: It's also interesting that people would assume that Finnish people are very uh, knowledgeable about foraging because nature is such a big part here compared to, for yeah. example, London. Yeah. But then again, you discovered foraging in London. yeah. Um, so you didn't have this connection here. Or do you have any ideas about like why it isn't more of a part of life here?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Thanks for bringing this up. Yeah, for me to... involved with foraging in london in in shoreditch that's like surreal and i love that aspect how i came across with this foraging so basically in finland uh, this uh, way of living of being in touch with nature and using these ingredients this is the real core of our like uh, ab original you know identity but it's it's been cut off basically after war after last war when all this food that now we're discussing here had this like uh, they were like stamped that you know it's for poor people it's for the it kind of has this uh, like a sound that it's for people who can't afford to go to shop to buy this mass-produced ingredients from around the globe (laughs) trafficked here via ships and you know cool trucks (laughs) and put into shop shelves with plastic wrapping and plastic labeling and so on so this is basically the situation is outcome of of partly because of that and also industrialization and this urbanization where this connection to nature has been also stamped as like something old fashioned, not so cool. But as we all know that nowadays, what we're now discussing is actually cool because, you know, we humans, we've come from wild to tame and now it's time to go back again.
0: Uh, we were just walking along and you, st- you took something and put it in your mouth. What was that?
1: Uh, I had to think what it was. It. <laughs> I recognized it and I, I automatically grabbed it. This is basically raspberry leaves. Very young. Yeah, very small. young. Sweet, fragrant. Tastes like raspberries. These green leaves.
0: So you're basically snacking as you walk yeah, through the forest.
1: exactly. And that's a great way of... Uh, refining the tune between the nature and yourself. You keep on snacking. And I've also realized that uh, the more we eat wild, sometimes you can't do it heavy amounts because they are full of nutrients. And this information that only like a handful of salad is enough for a week. But uh, the more often we do it, and uh, as time goes by, the more, more we eat, the deeper we get. So this snacking is, it's kind of a natural instinct I have you know, I'm just deepening the connection for this vintage 2022. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's gonna be my new way of hiking, snacking. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly, <laughs> snacking the wild.
0: Even though me and Sami are talking about snacking as we walk through the forest, I would like to remind you Do not ever taste anything that you cannot identify a hundred percent. There are a lot of poisonous plants, but when you have identified something as edible, for sure, feel free to snack your surroundings. Safety is important and many foragers also want to underline the ethics of foraging. How can we make sure that with our foraging we support and learn about biodiversity in nature? and not just take, 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 like we've done with mass-produced food. Sami thinks that one should always approach the wild green supermarket with gratitude and humility. Take what you need and what you can use, and nothing more. For example, if there are some patches of rare plants, you should only collect a maximum of 20% of that particular patch. The more we spend time in nature, the more we become aware of it and what it has to offer us. For me, as someone who's not very familiar with all the different wild herbs, Mm. it looks like there's not much growing here, but is that true?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I I can hear it growing, you know. (laughs) I'm in the middle of this, you know five-dimensional you know, reality. I'm in it, I can hear the trees grow and <laughs> I can hear the wood sorrel you know, growing. But yeah, I guess it takes a little bit of a effort to start understanding when the growing season is happening for each plant and so on. Yeah. But basically, you don't need to go too deep in the woods because these plants are absolutely everywhere. And um, funny enough, the diversity of plants, like how many different plants you find from let's say one foraging trip, is often higher in amounts of the uh, quantities of the varieties in the cities where people, the human active life actually makes them spread even more. But then it's different feeling to gather the food from the woods,
0: yeah. Absolutely, so what can you see right now?
1: Uh, We can see some, uh, funny enough, we can see some uh, uh, black currants. we can see some wild raspberries, they both, you know, at the leaf stage, very early leaf stage now. And the spruce shoots are coming out. You can't see them, but uh, I know that they're coming out because I can sense it. (laughs) So if you go right next to it, you can see that there's some shoots coming, spruce shoots. And there's some uh, bilberry leaves. Actually, not just yet, no, but soon. And here are the rowan buds. I mentioned you, you can taste this.
0: I'm just eating a tree, a bud.
1: (laughs) You know, it's lovely to pick these herbs from the ground, but also when you touch trees and sometimes you can eat straight from the tree, these buds, it's just wonderful, isn't it?
0: It tastes so much like almond. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. And it's at the very early stage. So you can get the aroma and the vibrancy, the energy of the plant, but it's only going to get stronger.
0: (laughs) Wow. We in Finland are allowed to go into any forest and pick certain types of plants. Um, Can you tell us how this started and how is this a special law or can you find it around the world?
1: Yeah, we have this every man's right. Nowadays, it should be called everyone's right or every person's right, really, of course. So that's a bit old-fashioned name, but... uh, as far as I know, this is this incident that happened just over 100 years ago in Sava region in Finland, <coughs> where this lady called Irma Lindgren was picking lingonberries with her two friends. And uh, they suddenly got thirsty and they went to knock at the door of this hut they found in this little island just to ask for a glass of water for each of them because they were thirsty. And then these two blokes, brothers, opened the door and realized that all these ladies were carrying a... Uh, bucket full of lingonberries, and they got cross with them, saying that, oh, these are our berries, give them back to us, you know. And uh, Ilma Lindgren was one of them, the the head of the Lady Trio, was like saying that, actually, they're not yours, you know. We're just picking this just to, you know, just to have this lingonberries for ourselves, to eat eat it and to preserve it for the winter. But the brothers kind of insisted and took those buckets, and uh, Ilma wanted to fight for her rights and their rights. And uh, she basically uh, took these guys to the court. And it took three rounds, like all stages of court, totally six years to get the final result that actually these Lingenberries weren't property of these guys, even that they owned the land. But after that incident, we have this like um, legislations, like actual laws in Finland's law, official law book that this every man's rights should be protected for every person's rights. And that's beautiful. So ever since we've had actual laws in order to protect this right. And even before that, nobody has ever thought about it. So it's something that is quite unique, at least for Nordic countries, not only in Finland, but in many countries around the globe, you can't go to someone's land and pick berries and herbs. So that really is the quite significant kind of reminder that we are really one with nature and uh, it's, it's something that all humans have in themselves as a, as a skill to find edible food and also I personally think that this wild food is, you know, it's, it's beyond organic. Organic is great but when you eat wild from the surroundings where you live, you know, that's definitely a uh, way for the best possible life and well-being.
0: You can learn a lot from foraging mushrooms and wild herbs. I myself am a textbook example of someone who grew up in a city where food came almost exclusively from supermarkets and not the wild green ones. Only later did I understand the wider perspective of how food is grown and the different food production chains needed. Since the Second World War, we have been living in a global food system. A system where we are dependent on each other, but also on excessive fossil fuels. So how can we make this system more sustainable? These kinds of huge questions are at the center of Villa Lahde's work. Villa is an environmental research at the BIOS Research Unit. BIOS is an independent, multidisciplinary research unit which studies the effects of environmental and resource factors on Finnish society, on economy, politics and culture. I met up with Ville in the center of Tampere. We walked by the Tammerkoski rapid, which runs through the middle of the city. And Ville is also a gardener. And domestic gardening has an important role in his research.
2: For me, the biggest uh, teacher has always been the compost pile. Uh, I take care of the compost and we produce with the gazillions of little little animals and microbes and stuff. We co-produce, say, 30 trolleyfuls of compost every year. And I see the change from food droppings and excrement and cuttings into very, very dark and beautifully pungent soil. And that sort of teaches me how the real work in the garden is being done by somebody else than me. It's been done by all the life around me and by the sun, and I'm just a helper in that process.
0: In your research, um, you research a lot of the bigger picture of food production. How do you think that this background as a gardener and seeing the compost uh, informs your research?
2: Yes, I've been doing a lot of work regarding hunger and food insecurity issues. And recently uh, with the pandemic and the Ukraine war, I've been thinking a lot about food crises and the most vulnerable places in the world are places where the local food production systems have been decimated. It's a lot to do with inability to compete with importation, for example, and the inability to find markets for your produce, because everybody is competing in the same global marketplace, but also with local problems regarding empowerment, ownership of land and so on. So even though my home gardening is Well, luckily, far cry from problems like that. I still understand very closely that small-scale gardening, small-scale fishing is much more important for the whole world than is commonly assumed. Uh, It is not only the intensive agriculture that is feeding the world. Actually, small-scale farmers and producers are producing more food than those intensive producers, over 50%. Really? Yes, that is a commonly held misconception that industrial production is the main feeder. It is the people who are uh, sadly also poorer and often less food insecure than the majority of the wealth population. They are the ones who are at the same time feeding the world.
0: Uh, You just said uh, they are Less food insecure, do you, do you Less mean?
2: food secure, yes. yes. So the small-scale producers, even though they produce over 50% of the food consumed by people, uh, they tend to be poorer and less food secure. They are more vulnerable to price changes and all the kinds of uh, fluctuations in their surroundings.
0: So, if we think of going to a supermarket ourselves, where most of us, I would say, get most of our food from, is 50% of that made by small farmers like that? Or how do we understand this 50% no, figure? Uh,
2: the small-scale producers are most important in the poorer countries of the world. So in the so-called underdeveloped or developing countries, they are the ones who are the the foundation of food systems. Whereas in Finland, we eat a a huge percentage of what we eat is produced domestically in Finland. But of course, our farms are slowly have become bigger and bigger. They are often family farms, so we don't have big, corporate farms a lot in Finland, but still the size has been growing, of course, and the methods have been becoming more intensive over the decades.
0: I think in Finland, as you just said, we have a, there's a public image of being quite self-sufficient. There's a lot of products that are labeled made in Finland. Um, What do you think people should understand about self-sufficiency?
2: Well, especially now with the crisis of pandemic and the war, we have to understand that even though looking at the food that we eat, we seem to be fairly self-sufficient. We, of course, export and import food, but the end result is in the ballpark of 70-80% self-sufficiency. But a lot of that is illusionary since all of our production is faithfully dependent on imported fertilizers, imported fossil fuels, chemicals, machinery and so on. And with the bottlenecks created by the coronavirus pandemic and of course with the sanctions and all the disruptions of the war, we are suddenly finding it problematic to realize this potential self-sufficiency. So we are very dependent on the networks of the global food system even though we think that we are domestically quite self-sufficient.
0: Could we talk a little bit more about the global food system? It's a very big and complex um, system, a big network, but would you be able to explain in a or summarise how it works?
2: Yes, um, in a recent article that we have been writing with my colleagues, we described the network of local and regional food systems around the world as being divided between the centre and the periphery. And basic, basically what it means that the food systems in the centre are very tightly interwoven, They trade a lot with each other and they are more resilient to uh, small local disruptions because they have the ability to replenish uh, disrupted food production with trade and so on. And the food systems in the periphery, uh, they are of course less wealthy, but they have also less trading partners So they are more dependent on singular importing partners, for example, which can now be seen, for example, in Egypt, that they are very import dependent. They have a lot of poverty. And one of their main uh, trade partners, for example, has been Ukraine. And they are struggling to find both the money and the connections to replenish their food supplies in this situation. So this is one of the big things to understand that even though all the world has been more and more interconnected in the recent decades, the network is still uh, severely unequal. And it's making some people and some areas more vulnerable and some areas less vulnerable. But with uh, ongoing ecological crises, all areas are in the end becoming more fragile or more vulnerable. Because you can have simultaneous disruptions in many parts of the network. You can have a, say, a drought in Midwest America. You can have a heat wave in India. You can have locust infestations in Africa. You can have like 10 disruptions at the same time, and the whole network can start to break down. So even those countries with, which are now less vulnerable and more affluent, they can find themselves in serious problems.
0: How would you say um, this could be mitigated? If you think about the future of food production and global food production, how could we have a stronger system? Uh,
2: The prerequisite for having a stronger system is that we don't uh, cross critical boundaries with climate change and other big environmental problems. If we cross those thresholds, then nothing can stop the disasters. But in addition to that, we need, for example, to build up local food systems in those areas where those systems have been decimated in recent decades, say in many parts of Africa, uh, uh, Northern Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, Middle East, some parts of Southern America. So you need more local food production, so you are not so vulnerable to the disruptions in the international trade. It doesn't mean 100% self-sufficiency. That is no longer possible in many parts of the world because the populations are bigger, they are more urbanized, and the local natural resources have been severely damaged. But if you just raise the percentage of food that you grow yourself, then you are less vulnerable.
0: Could it also help uh, stabilize global food production if rich countries like Finland uh, put more money into local food production? Or would that go more into this kind of nationalist direction?
2: Well. Uh, Finland doesn't need to increase its food self-sufficiency because we're in the 70-80% ballpark. Because some international trade is always good. It's also a safeguard. Uh, what we should do, we should try to be more self-sufficient regarding fertilizers, energy, chemicals, and so on. So change our food production practices in a way that we they wouldn't be so resource and energy uh, intensive, so make them more ecological in that sense also. That would make us also less vulnerable to the situations like the one we're in now. But for us to aim for 100% self-sufficiency would also mean that we would deprive poorer countries of potential markets. So if we could get just get the global food trade to be more equitable, those countries who need markets for their produce could benefit. But if we just sort of restrict ourselves international borders, that possibility goes away.
0: After these talks and walks with Sami and Ville, I'm reminded once again how connected and interdependent everything is. It's good to eat locally produced food, but it's also good to eat food that has been traded equitably. So don't be restricted to just the local view. Always have the global view in mind too. In the next episode of Reviving the Wild, we talk about healthy soil and its potential. My name is Mia Lina. Thank you for listening.